Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Banning books in our schools, but it goes much deeper than just literature. We talk to two educators about the lack of diversity in teaching staff in our classrooms and how that's having an effect on our black and brown communities. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. There's a crisis in our education system, and it's not just the banning of certain books in schools. It's to do with the diversifying of our teaching staff to reflect better the different cultures in our communities and to help reduce or remove bias in our classrooms. And it's about the schools themselves and how they are funded and other staff they employ, from school counsellors to police resource officers. I spoke with Dr. Teresa Boulay, Professor of Education at Eastern Connecticut State University, about her years of research in these areas, and a recent Eastern alumna, Alyssa Zabrowski, who graduated with her degree in early childhood education and is now a kindergarten teacher at Black Rock School in Bridgeport, to get more insight into the lack of diversity in our classrooms. You both, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So February is Black History Month, and we're talking about education and teaching. Teresa, I'm going to turn to you first. You know, what does this mean and what impacts does this have, you know, in the educational field? Well, one of the things I think we need to remember is that we need to be inclusive of all different types of diversity. And in this case, our students of color or Black students throughout the entire year and not just in the month of February. So making sure that there's representation in our classroom, making sure that we use children's books and other curriculum materials and things all year long, not just in the month of February, that are inclusive of our Black students. Thinking about like the symbolic curriculum, the walls, making sure that we have students of color on the walls. And, you know, one of the things important to note about this is that we do use children's literature and texts of different types to include diversity in our classrooms often. And it's not always the easiest thing. You know, a lot of people don't know that 41% approximately of children's books have white characters and another 30% have characters that are animals. So only 12% of our books, uh, children's books that are published every year have black characters. And so this underrepresentation or omission of people of color is, is true in, the, in children's books and curriculum materials and assessments. And teachers just need to be careful to make sure that they're representing throughout the year and not just in February. And also I'll add that it's also really important to make sure that we're not just looking at the history of black Americans. We're not just looking at black Americans in the context of slavery and oppression, but we also have to make sure that we're looking at more contemporary black Americans who are doing wonderful things like maybe the poet, Amanda Gorman, or looking at others like Dr. Mae Jeminson, who is an engineer and an astronaut. And so depicting African-American characters in books or people, real people who are doing really amazing things and not just depicting them, you know, in in, uh, slavery and and other types of ways in which they've been oppressed in our country. Alyssa, do you want to talk a little bit about how you do this in your classroom? 
In my classroom, we work really hard to make sure that, of course, during Black History Month, we're emphasizing Black history, but that it's really happening throughout the entire school year. I always want to make sure that my students, who are a very diverse population of little learners, that they feel represented in our classrooms. So as Teresa said, posters on the walls and throughout literature, we always make sure that we're including literature that shows students of all different races, um, different family dynamics and things like that. I want to make sure that they feel like they're represented in the things that we're learning. Something that Teresa mentioned was making sure that it wasn't just the history of African-Americans, but also incorporating people from today. So I love looking for stories about Black individuals in pop culture. So we love reading stories about, for example, Simone Biles, who was the Olympic gymnast, and people like that. It's really exciting for, for all of my students to see themselves represented in people that are making huge differences in our country. So just incorporating it throughout the year, not just in February, is really important. Lisa, I just want to pick up on something as well. You are a kindergarten teacher. So as you said, you've got young learners there. How important is it in your view to start getting obviously balance across to students at this age? And do they take it in? Yes, they definitely do. I think the earlier you start, the less of a problem that we will have in the future. So if we start making sure that students are exposed to just all different types of people and cultures, then we won't have as many problems moving forward. So as as the earlier we can start in schools exposing children to diversity and making sure that there's inclusion all year, the better they'll be. And I'd love to jump in on that if I could. I think as Alyssa just said, it's really important for all students that we're inclusive of students um, of different diversities, all different types of diversity. In this case, we're talking about Black History Month, so our Black Americans. But I think it's beneficial, not just to all students, as we're preparing all students to live in a pluralistic society, as Alyssa was just mentioning, but also there's a lot of research that supports how important it is for those students to see themselves depicted in the books that they're reading or the classroom materials that are being used. It not only creates a safe climate for them in the classroom, obviously it supports their social emotional development and their self-worth and their feelings about themselves and their families, their cultures, these identities that are so important to them, but also academically. So way back, you know, in my dissertation back 21 years ago at the University of Connecticut, I looked at if teachers were including multicultural, multi-ethnic books in their classrooms, would students be more inclined to read and feel better about themselves as readers? And so reading is like anything, practice makes perfect. And what, we, what I found and what a lot of other studies have found is that when students see themselves depicted in books, they are more likely to want to read, that reading becomes more practice, that pra- they become better readers, they develop more confidence in their reading, and it's a beautiful cycle that begins. The thing I want to pick up with both of you as well is how do you go beyond, you know, the teacher? Because also you have to examine, you know, school-wide policies as well, don't you? And this is something, Teresa, I think that you're going to pick up on in just a moment, is that, you know, you can have the greatest teachers, but if the school policies don't seem to fit well, you've instantly got like a, a loggerhead there. It's true. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about and, um, you know, what teachers are doing in their classrooms, but school-wide policies are some of the most discriminative towards uh, students of color, in particular discipline policies. 
So we know starting in preschool, we know that there have been some studies out of Yale that show that preschool teachers, they track the preschool teacher's eyes and who they're watching during the day. 75% of the time they're tracking boys, but almost 50% of the time they're tracking black boys. And so black students in preschool we're talking about are almost four times more likely to be suspended than their white peers. So discipline policies, and I always say in my classes to be an anti-bias educator, we need to be thinking about beyond our classroom, beyond our own implicit bias, which is so important, thinking about how we can make our classrooms inclusive of diversity and more equitable to all students. But we also have to be thinking about our school policies. And I think in this case, we have to call our administrators, our superintendents to the table as well. Not just discipline, you know, policies, but also policies like programs, like gifted programs. Our major- the majority of students in gifted programs are white students. Special education programs, the majority of students in um, special education programs are students of color. And I think we know that there's some research that shows that Black students with disabilities are more likely to be identified with intellectual disabilities or emotional disturbances than other students with disabilities. And they're also more likely to receive disciplinary removal than their uh, white counterparts or students who white students with disabilities. So there's a lot to think about in terms of school-wide policies, um, a lot that needs to be changed. And Alyssa, you know, as an educator, you know, when it comes to addressing discipline in your own classroom, how do you go about that to make sure that you're not being biased or you're not doing exactly what uh, Teresa just said, which is, you know, potentially picking on black young, you know, male students? It's really important as as an educator to understand that Sometimes students are going to act out or display concerning behaviors, but it's really important for teachers not to jump straight to discipline and then move on, but to try to figure out the reasons for the behavior and what's going on. Sometimes something could be going on at home or in another part of their life, and it's really important to talk to the students and establish relationships right from the beginning of the school year so that students can trust you and they feel as though they can share their feelings with you and any problems that are going on, because sometimes that can really be the root of any type of concerning behavior. In our school, we use something called the Ruler Program, and that's really just a social-emotional learning tool where students can chart themselves on a graph. You know, blue represents sad and red represents angry and so on. And they can graph if they're feeling happy or upset. And sometimes just giving them the opportunity to show to you that they're feeling a certain way can open up the conversation for something that's going on. So that can be really, really useful. And also just making sure that they feel comfortable to discuss their feelings or or their worries. But that can also be a cultural factor. So certain cultures might feel more comfortable opening up and, and sharing more information while other cultures are a little bit more private. So it's really important to make sure that as an educator, you're also understanding that there can be differences among families who are who are more comfortable or less comfortable to share with you. The other thing I want to pick up with both of you as well is obviously the, the funding of schools. Obviously, some schools have got better funding than others. And, and then you have the like the lower income schools. And often these schools, you know, instead of having maybe social workers or nurses who are part of that mix of staff to to help students we have police officers instead and I don't want to make the point here that police officers just because they're at schools is a bad thing but 
The point is, it has been raised that having police officers often at schools sometimes can cause more problems than that actually helps. Yeah, that's certainly true. I think, Alyssa, in a second, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you utilize social workers in your school. But yes, our schools are inequitably funded. This has been something that, you know, Jonathan Kozel in his book, Save, uh, Savage Inequalities, published years ago. And then the many subsequent books he published after that, um, very similar books, because things just simply haven't changed. How we fund our schools is completely inequitable. In Connecticut, we have a big disparity. We're the richest state in the country, and we have have a large percentage of our students and families living in poverty and our schools are not equally funded. So actually just recently I was talking in my college classroom about an issue in working with families and how we might better understand all different families and incorporate that into our classrooms. And one of my students said, well, it's really good that we all have social workers. And I said, that's not actually true. A lot of schools do not have social workers. And so, as you've said, it's really problematic when those social workers or nurses or school psychologists are substituted with police officers or security officers. There's a lot of research that shows that this contributes to the school to prison pipeline. And when we know that three times more black males and six times more black females are disciplined, are suspended and expelled from school. Recently in the news, we've heard that a nine-year-old was arrested. Um, We've heard seven-year-olds, not 10-year-olds being arrested. So it's really a problem. Alyssa, would you like to talk a little bit about social workers in your school? Yeah, um, I'm glad that you mentioned the importance of having guidance counselors and social workers and continuing the funding for those positions. Um, We're fortunate enough to have guidance and um, a social worker. They are actually both part-time at my school, but it's so important that we keep the funding up for those positions because unfortunately more and more schools are replacing them, like you said, with resource officers or police officers. And When students are exhibiting behaviors like we discussed before that are concerning or acting out, guidance counselors and social workers can help work with the student to work with them through some of those things, but they can also work with the families and the teachers and really tie together the student, the families, the teachers, and try to really work on those behaviors for students to be able to overcome whatever is going on. And without those resources, there could be a a bigger disconnect. So guidance counselors and and social workers are really crucial in in our classrooms and in our schools. And let's turn to obviously diversifying the teaching workforce as well. I, I know teachers are incredibly hardworking people. But of course, again, you know, they have children, students with them for many hours of the day. You know, none of us are perfect. We've all got our biases. We've all got our issues, whether they're personal or they're to do with, you know, work or whatever. But, you know, diversing that teaching workforce to to make classrooms, you know, more equitable. How important is that? And are we going in the right direction? I think it's extremely important, and I'm not sure that we're going in the right direction. While there has maybe been a slight increase in teachers of of color in our classrooms, the state of Connecticut and nationally is pretty close. I think our classrooms are very predominantly white. Maybe I think it was close to 80, 82% of our students are white. And of course, predominantly female, able-bodied, monolingual, middle class, and down the line. I think that this creates a really disadvantaged experience for students of color who come to school and experience almost a culture shock because maybe the ways in which they communicate, their their discourse, their communication styles, whether or not they have eye contact, 
all of these things may be different. And, you know, certainly white students are a little bit more privileged in these settings. I also think that while, as you said, we all have our biases, but we know what we know. And I think one of the things that teachers are really great at is learning about the different cultures of their students and their families. But until they do or as they do, and even if they work really hard to do so, there's still going to be miscommunication. It's a breeding ground for microaggressions and, and you know, mis- misunderstandings. One other thing that I think is really important is uh, we all know how important expectations are. And there are actually statistics that show that there's been a number of studies that show that if a Black student has one Black teacher before third grade, they're 13% more likely to go to college. If they were fortunate enough to have two black teachers, they're 33% more likely to go to college. And of course, they're more likely in both cases to stay in school. But we also know that our teachers' expectations for us are really important. And so if we might have, we have so many uh, teachers who are white and the majority of our students are students of color and with varying backgrounds, students feel the same expectations. Albert Bandura back in the 60s did some work on what he called self-efficacy, which is about confidence of learning. And he said that one of the ways that we can motivate our students and to help them to feel confident about themselves as learners is to have them see someone like them achieve a task. And when they do that, they feel more confident that they can achieve that task as well. So that obviously has a direct impact on their academics. So there's a lot of reasons why diversifying the teaching force is so important. And I do just want to mention that in Connecticut, we have a minority incentive grant and a lot of people don't know about it, but it's Connecticut's effort to diversify the teaching force. And when students are undergraduate students are in a teacher preparation program at any university in Connecticut, they are eligible to receive full tuition for their junior and senior year. And this is one way in which, you know, the state of Connecticut is working to diversify the teaching force. Alyssa, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. As a white teacher in a very diverse inner city school, I can just see the need every day for for more diverse teaching staff. It's definitely a challenge sometimes to make sure that I am reaching out to all of my families to make sure that their cultures feel represented in my classroom. Because even when I try my best, I think there's always something more that we can be doing as educators to, to incorporate all cultures into our classroom. Something that I do every year is send out parent surveys where they have the opportunity to answer a lot of questions just about their family and their home life and their culture and the things that they do. And that's sort of my way of opening it up to ask them what else I can be doing in the classroom to make it more diverse and culturally friendly and allow all of the different cultures in my classroom to learn about other cultures and different family life and family styles. And it's something that I try to add to every year and open up to families to come into the classroom and share stories from their cultures or come in and teach us about a certain type of tradition that their family has. But every year we just try and to incorporate more families and more diversity into the classroom. But I definitely think that we need to continue moving in that direction to have a more diverse teaching staff so that students can see themselves represented throughout the school and have those role models look like them or talk like them or, or have the same cultural values as them. 
And just quickly picking up on that, uh, Elisa, how do the parents take to that? Do they find that helpful? You know, when they come in, they see what's happening in the school, they can be part of it because, yes, they can be part of their own child's upbringing. Of course, they are their parents after all. But, you know, being able to be part of wider conversation with another student, do they find that helpful? Yeah, and I think a lot of the families feel really excited when I open that up to them, which to me, it's like, of course, you're part of our classroom, you're part of our school, your, your, your culture and your family is going to be represented here. But I think that that surprise sometimes is just another example of how much more often we need to do this, because that shouldn't be surprising to them, they should be able to expect that their family and their culture is represented all the time. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Teresa Boule, Professor of Education at Eastern Connecticut State University and Elisa Zabrowski, classroom teacher down in Bridgeport in Connecticut. Thank you both for your insight on this. Obviously, it is a conversation that we need to continue to have and will continue to have. And we thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. The American Red Cross blood supply is at historically low levels this winter, and we're facing a dangerous situation across the country. Without the blood they need, hospitals may be forced to make tough decisions about patient care. Donors are needed now to ensure blood is available for everyone who needs it, when they need it. The good news is, you can help. Make an appointment to give now. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Patients are counting on you. Tree damage caused by high winds, hurricanes, or stormy weather? Green Valley Tree has you covered. We offer emergency storm service for residential, commercial, and even municipalities. From full removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken and fractured limbs, no job too big or small. If you need immediate emergency service outside our regular business hours, call our emergency hotline at 860-966-5710 and visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for details of our other services. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. Contractors in eastern Connecticut have been facing delays and having to travel further and pay more to get road salt after a local company driven that was based at State Pier in New London and provided salt was forced to close its location because of redevelopment at the site. Brian Luby is the owner of Forest City Landscaping based in Middletown and provides road salting during the winter months to local shopping plazas and apartment complexes. Luby says he's now facing five to seven day delays to get road salt from Gateway Terminal in New Haven because they're the only place in the state available to him and many others. I don't have the DOT credentials to travel out of state and obviously that would be an enormous additional cost for me. I just am having a hard time understanding why the state would limit the sale just to one port in the state. They opened up the port in New London for four to five year period and things were going great. I would call my provider and he would have a load of salt out to me within 24 hours. One of our accounts is one of the largest apartment complex in the state and there's over 3,000 people that live there. And obviously everyone has special some special needs. There's a, a lady on site that I know that's blind and you know has her issues getting around and there's some other people on the property are handicapped as well. So when I can't salt the property and I know in the back of my head that the site is icy, you know, I'm concerned. 
Luby says more contractors are going to Gateway Terminal, which is adding to the road salt delay because of higher demand. Elected officials from Connecticut's Council of Small Towns met for their annual town meeting recently. The event allowed leaders from the state's 169 towns to speak directly to members of the General Assembly ahead of the start of the 2022 legislative session. Governor Lamont spoke at the event and addressed the situation around the federal government's infrastructure plan and the billions of dollars being made available to the states. All this money does come with strings attached. I've got to put up, say, 20% of my copay. So if we're getting a billion dollars a year for infrastructure, we still have to be able to put up our $200 million a year on that. You know, a lot of that's in broadband, a lot of that's in a water treatment. I'll probably be asking you to come in alongside of us. So, you know, if we put up 20%, if you put up 10%, we're that much more likely to be at the front of the line and get the federal support that we need. Lamont was joined by Attorney General William Tong, who spoke about the recent multi-state court case against pharma giant Johnson & Johnson and their role in the opioid crisis and Connecticut's $300 million settlement that local towns will be getting to help with drug issues locally. The Connecticut Office of State Contracting Standards Board recently released its draft procurement review on the Connecticut Port Authority. Lawrence Fox is the chair of the Standards Board and said several serious issues had been identified to them in how the CPA had awarded certain contracts, one of which was paying an agency over half a million dollars for a success fee. There's a whole section on prohibition of finders fees in the state of Connecticut. And one could make an argument that a success fee is a finder's fee by another name. But we're not the body that would determine that. It would be the attorney general that would determine that. Fox also criticized state government for failing to provide agencies with procurement training and failing his own organization by underfunding them and the work they do. There is an underinvestment by this state in the infrastructure for the agencies that have to do it. And there's certainly an underinvestment by our state in the watchdog that's supposed to watch it. Now, what could possibly go wrong? The review by the watchdog organization was prompted by complaints from the public over how the authority had been conducting business, particularly its controversial redevelopment of New London's state pier. Other findings in the board's draft report found contracts had been awarded prior to obtaining CPA board approval and the CPA should obtain proper authority to enter into public-private partnerships as a quasi-state agency. The report will go to the Attorney General, the State Legislator and the Governor's Office with recommendations for further action. Seaside State Park in Waterford could finally be redeveloped if the state wins a grant available under the American Rescue Plan Act or ARPA. Mason Trumbull is the Deputy Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, DEEP, and says if they are awarded the grant between 5 and $10 million, the plan is to demolish dilapidated buildings at the site and turn it into a passive park space. The buildings would come down. Obviously, we want to make sure we do a good job recognizing the historical and cultural value that those buildings represent. That's really important to us. This is the simplest and most kind of realistic model uh, for Seaside at, at this time and in this grant opportunity. So, you know, again, we, we wait till we hear back on the grant before we, we made a formal decision on the, the path we take, but that's the path we're pursuing as part of this grant. We had some uh, additional estimates done on that passive park option and price jumped up to, you know, over $5 million. So I think we'd be looking, we haven't finalized the, the amount we're looking for, we anticipate it being uh, somewhere between 5 and $10 million. Seaside was once an asylum and closed more than two decades ago, and the buildings on the site have been left to deteriorate. 
Former Governor Malloy turned Seaside into a state park back in 2014 and since then attempts to redevelop it have come to nothing. The grant application will be made in March and the state will have to wait and see if they are successful in being awarded funding. Mohegan Sun opened their permanent sports book facility on February 10th and a soft opening event at the Mohegan Casino. Co-sponsored by Fangio, their gaming partner, the 11,000 square foot space boasts a 140 foot video wall and 30 additional high resolution flat screens for bettors to use and watch plus a full bar. Mohegan Sun was the place where the first legal sports bet took place in September 2021 when new laws in the state opened up new online betting and gaming in the state. A grand opening for the sportsbook is planned on March 5th. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, State Representative Joe Dela Cruz of Groton announced he will not run for re-election this year after he finishes his third term. Dela Cruz, who was elected in 2020 for the third time to represent District 41, including Groton and New London, said on the floor of the House of Representatives that he would be ending his run in the General Assembly to focus on his job as vice president of Hillary Company in Groton, where business supplying submarine parts had increased trifold. And Willimantic's Wyndham Region No Freeze project will be getting a new home thanks to a generous donation to the non-profit. This spring, the organisation will take ownership of the office building at 433 Valley Street in the town thanks to a $275,000 donation from the Lester E. and Phyllis M. Foster Foundation. The foundation's executive director, David Foster, said the donation was made in honour of Elsa M. Nunez, president of Eastern Connecticut State University. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.